Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. But to help us to embrace and to hold fast to hope, specifically hope of everlasting life. On the second Sunday of Advent, as we learn to persevere in a world of sin and suffering and death within us and all around us, let's grab hold of this promise, this prophecy as a lifeline. Let's put all of our hope, all of our hope in Jesus. That's my prayer for today's message. Now, as you know, Emmanuel means God with us. And for me, the mystery of Advent is that the Messiah has already come and gone. And yet, the Lord is with us always. But then, he's also promised to come again. Now, it's fairly common for me to not know where I am or whether I'm coming or going, but for the creator and the savior of the universe, that's a pretty big deal. So that caused me to want to pay attention to these three advents. The first, the second, and the third arrivals of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The first, of course, is the nativity, the incarnation in which the unbegotten Son of God, the Word of God, took on flesh to live and die as one of us so that our sins might be forgiven, that death might be destroyed, and so we could be reconciled with the Father. Now, we'll especially celebrate the incarnation with the pageant at 5 p.m. on December 11th, here, and at the services of Lessons and Carols on Christmas Eve at 5 and 6.30 p.m., and throughout all 12 days of Christmas, from December 25th through January 6th. Yay, tis the season. The second advent, the second arrival of the Messiah, comes inwardly in our conversion and our salvation, in which we actively invite Jesus to come into our hearts and become the Lord of our lives. We receive forgiveness of our sins and also the Holy Spirit. We are adopted into God's family, and then we begin ah, the transformative process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. And as we'll see, that is not necessarily a comfortable experience. We celebrate the advent or the arrival of the Lord in baptism and in confirmation when we confess our sins and when we gather together to share in Holy Communion. And of course, the third Advent is the last day in which Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, reforming, renewing, and remaking this insane, broken, sinful world. It's when the King of kings and the Lord of lords will receive his own unto himself and send those who willfully reject salvation away from his presence, back into the darkness. Now, the trick, and it's a trick, it's a juggling trick, really, of keeping a holy advent is to simultaneously try to keep in mind and heart 
all three of these arrivals. I sometimes feel like four Sundays aren't quite enough to contemplate the holy mysteries of Advent. Now, the daily Advent wreath, many of you made some, I think, last week and brought them home and uh, brought home the booklet to go with it. Well, that's been part of my Advent observance for about 35 years, and it really does help. Though this year, I admit, I have not been really good about keeping this spiritual discipline. I confess, I have let myself become distracted by the cares of this world. What I need is a head start to gather up speed, to build the momentum of anticipation, to fill my imagination and my expectation and my hope for when the Lord will come again. Now, if this was a relay race, I would say I need a forerunner to come thundering toward me down the lane so I can match his pace for a few strides, seize the baton, run that part of the race with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then pass that baton, which in my mind turned into a torch, (laughs) onto the next runner. Well, lo and behold, my wish has been granted in our Old Testament and our gospel lessons this morning. I'm going to be preaching today on both Luke chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 3. So if you want to follow along in your pew Bibles or on your phones, only the Bible app on your phones, please. (laughs) Uh, We'll be going right through it. Now Luke has already given us the nativity narrative at this point. So the first advent's already happened. The first two verses in chapter 3 list eight prominent leaders at the time of the adult John the Baptist, right before Jesus enters the scene. And you did a great job with those, Cindy. I mean, oh my goodness. At least it's not like some of the genealogies that we get. But, oh. Okay, so this is right before Jesus enters the scenes. And the purpose of these verses is to establish the events in history at a particular time. Yes, this was real. Yes, it really happened. And we know when and we knew who thought they were in charge at the time. We can pinpoint John the Baptist's river ministry to about 29 AD. Now, it takes some doing, some finagling, because this involves reconciling the Hebrew calendar with the Roman Julian calendar and then reconciling that with the Gregorian calendar. The most interesting thing about that list is that half those people mentioned had an active involvement involvement in the crucifixion and death of Jesus just three years later. Next, we learn of John's primary ministry, preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's mission was to prepare people for the second arrival, a personal encounter with the living Lord. We need to humble ourselves open the doors of our hearts to receive Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is here, he says, and you're not ready. In fact, you're a mess. That's my translation of this. Now, the last three verses of our gospel lesson are a direct quote from Isaiah 40, and I'll spend a little time with that because it really establishes the forerunner as John, but then talks about this second advent, our conversion and Jesus and our personal encounter with the Lord. Luke identifies that the forerunner promised in Malachi and in uh, in Isaiah is, in fact, John. And he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah, in this quote that Luke uses, but is actually from Isaiah, chapter 40, he uses the language of road building, 
so that when the king arrives, it'll be smooth going. In other words, the Messiah requires us to invest in our own spiritual infrastructure. Here's a word we hear a lot about. The quote from Isaiah refers to leveling out hills and valleys, clearing away obstacles and stumbling blocks, challenges, frustrations, failures. Our wills are stubborn, and our flesh is so subject to temptation, preparing the way, it's hard work. We need to take our sin as seriously as God does. So I invite you, if you wish, to close your eyes and prayerfully reflect, and I'll guide you through this passage from Isaiah, as quoted by Luke, and see if the Lord presents to you some areas of road work that need to be done between here and home. Where am I falling short? What valleys need to be filled in? Where am I feeling empty, like there's a hole in my life? Where there's something missing or unfulfilled? Show me my pitfalls and what open wounds need healing. And what mountains and hills need to be made low in my life? What commands too much of my attention? What needs to be shrunk back down into a molehill? What's dominating my life? And what's blocking the light? What crooked roads need to become straight? Roads are good. What good things in my life are being twisted, turned into something else, something that makes me lose sight of the goal? What are the rough ways that need to be made smooth? What is making this such a bumpy ride? Is there debris to be removed, excess baggage? Is it the rough way, or are my shock absorbers shot? Clear away the junk, the distractions, the irritation, and the impatience. Amen. We can start cleaning up our act now, but of course we'll never finish. <laughs> Good thing that when Jesus comes into our lives, he, the carpenter, who gets the job done on time and under budget, doesn't give up. He gets the job done, and he is the one who makes us presentable to the Father. Verse 5, Luke includes the last words from this passage from Isaiah, that all mankind will see salvation. Now, that doesn't mean we'll all be saved. It means that the gospel is for all people. Personally, I am delighted by the irony of how John the Baptist, this wild and woolly, bug-eating radical, turned up his nose at following in his father's footsteps, dropped out of apprenticeship for the Levitical priesthood, only to become the last and greatest prophet of the Lord. I love preaching on John the Baptist, but I'm not gonna, because I'm gonna be going into more Malachi, and Father Jordan will be preaching John's message of mercy and justice next week. Instead, I want to dig deeper into that passage from Malachi to see what it says about the three advents as they relate to the messenger, sanctification, and judgment. All three of those themes are there. They're right there in Malachi, one of the lesser prophets, the last of the prophets before God stopped sending the word of the Lord to prophets for 400 years until John, the last 
And they all, all three of, what he, of these themes have to do with our understanding of how to keep a holy advent. So, messianic prophecies. Dun, dun, dun. According to messianic.org, and yes, there is a messianic.org, there are no fewer than 331 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And they have all been fulfilled by the genealogy, the birth, the life, the suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. And that's not counting the more than 100 prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, mostly from the New Testament and from Jesus himself involving the events that lead up to the end times, what I call the third advent, Christ's return and judgment day. Now, of those 331 messianic prophecies, five refer to a forerunner, someone who would live in the wilderness, come in the spirit of Elijah, turn many people to righteousness, and prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. I must have an extra finger. (laughs) Now, this quote from the prophet Isaiah in our gospel lesson, that covers two of those prophecies. And the remaining three of the five are in Malachi. A messenger prepares the way, readying us to receive the Messiah as he first enters onto the world stage. That's the first advent. Malachi says, see, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And next we've got the delightful messenger of the covenant. And that actually is the Messiah. So that second messenger, that is the Messiah. He comes to his temple. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You can say a lot about John the Baptist, but delighting in him isn't probably high up on the list. That's Jesus. It's Jesus that we delight in. So Malachi, when he wrote this, was really concerned with reforming the Levitical priesthood, but there's a larger application, and it involves this second advent. Jesus did arrive, and he did enter into the temple of Jerusalem. But I would suggest that when we invite him into our hearts, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he comes to dwell within us, purifying and sanctifying us, preparing us as a royal priesthood to enter into the fullness of his kingdom. That is the second advent, and it's happening right now. Finally, Malachi describes the dreadful day of the Lord's coming again as a judge when we stand before him. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? That's the third advent, the one yet to come. Do you feel ready? Do you honestly believe you'll be able to stand when, John, when Jesus comes in glory? If Jesus came today... Would you be so happy to see his face that you wouldn't even notice, much less care that the whole world is being turned upside down? Or would you despair at the abrupt upheaval of everything you've known your whole life, where all your priorities are redefined by the standard of what the Lord values most, your possessions, your vocation, your marriage, your plans for the future? The sins that you enjoy so much that you're not quite ready to forsake? I don't think any one of us can truthfully answer one or the other fully and completely. I think we're on a spectrum of saints and sinners. I loved in, in the, was it the psalm or the song that we sang? 
You know, call in the sinners, wake up the saints. Well, that's all of us, right? So come on in and wake up. Here we go. Where we see ourselves on that spectrum gives us a really good idea of how our road is doing and what we need to do to help prepare the way, to make the path straight, the hills and valleys in our lives that need leveling, the rough patches that need smoothing over, and those crooked areas that need straightening out during this second advent before Jesus comes again. Recognizing the work that needs to be done is the first big step in having a holy advent and getting a good, solid grip on our hope for eternal life. Now Malachi gives us a pretty interesting description of that third advent, the last judgment, when Jesus comes in glory. Verses 2 to 4 is described what it will be like for those who belong to the Lord, and verse 5 condemns the rest. We're talking sheep and goats here. We're talking wheat and chaff, the fruitful and the barren. Now, either way, it's going to be tough. So there's good news and bad news, and I like to hear the bad news first, so we'll go to verse 5. One of the things that gnaws at me, that really sabotages my peace and my hope, is the recognition that bad, evil, selfish, corrupt people are doing terrible things, showing no remorse and getting away with it. No consequences. They lust for power oppress and despoil children, the poor and the vulnerable. They change the rules for their own profit, the expense of others. They're hypocrites and liars and thieves and degenerates who wallow in and glorify their willful, wicked ways, their selfishness and their sin. They mock God and they persecute his people. Now, when this black mood overcomes me and nearly overwhelms me, and I don't have any chocolate chip cookies at hand, I cry out in the darkness, where is the justice of God? Where is the justice of God? Malachi 3.5 pronounces that judgment against all those who flaunt goodness and seem to be getting away with evil. For them, when the Lord returns, the end will be swift and irrevocable. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, good. Serves them right. Come, Lord Jesus. But until that day, what about the rest of us, the ones of us who are trying to do our best? Where is our hope? It's here in the second advent. For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord. In righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Refiner's fire. Fuller's soap. That's industrial strength laundry detergent. Even stronger than what you can get at Costco. Removing what doesn't belong. And that is an excruciating process. It feels like dying. It feels like being burned up, melting, 
or being beaten against a river rock and twisted and friction and lathered up and repeat and rinse. But the result is pure gold, a spotless garment. Oh, so it was for a good cause? The gold isn't burned up. The garment isn't torn up for rags. Now we become worthy. So yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. Jesus has come into our hearts and he is in the process of removing anything in us that doesn't belong, that doesn't fit his image of who he created us to be. All the impurities and the pollution, the corruption and the sin, it's going to get rough sometimes. But would you really want it any other way? In C.S. Lewis's, I had to do this because C.S. Lewis and Tolkien seem to be the patron saints of Church of the Advent. So I've been trying to catch up. I never will. But so for you fans, C.S. Lewis in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I'm already seeing people nod. I don't even need to do it. But Eustace Clarence Scrub describes to Edmund how terrible it felt when Aslan, the lion in Christ figure, changed him from the dragon he'd become to the boy he was intended to be. Lewis writes, The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio. But it's such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Eustace ends up loving the lion who inflicted the pain. Through his anguish, the boy came to trust that Aslan had good intentions, was motivated by love. A thorough and rigorous purification like that sounds painful, but necessary. The process of sanctification is rewarded by righteousness. Then we may enter as bearers of a pleasing offering, offering into the presence of the Lord. That's the better path. The alternative is terrifying. In Dante's Inferno, inscribed over the gates of hell are the words, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. This Advent, let us choose to become a people who embrace hope, even in the darkness, and even as the Lord works to strip away the self-image we have mistakenly made for ourselves. Let us look forward with joyful anticipation for the day when 
our Lord Jesus Christ comes again in glory. Maybe there's a fourth arrival, a fourth advent. It's when we, reformed back into the image and likeness of the one who created us, at long last enter his gates with thanksgiving and go into his courts with praise. The last advent is when we finally arrive at home. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.